beyond this ridge is the enemy. His strength has been sapped by steady aerial strikes. But he is still a long way from being defeated. He still has his will to fight. How can we weaken that will? Now that the enemy has had a strong dose of our military power, the impact of words may provide the final persuasion. Words that go something like this. Soldiers of North Korea, you are surrounded. Your comrades are dying. You will die next. There is just one hope. Leave your positions tonight. What you're hearing are clips from a 1952 U.S. Army film explaining the basics of psychological warfare during the Korean War. Blasting the battlefield with loudspeaker messages or dropping shells loaded with leaflets inviting surrender were meant to discourage the enemy. PSYOPs has long been part of warfare, and its effectiveness has always invited great debate. The North Koreans had their own methods. They broadcast a radio program with an American-born propagandist nicknamed Seoul City Sioux. Hi, fellas. How are you today? Not so good, huh? Well, you know what General Sherman said about war. Oh, well, it'll only last seven or eight years, fellas. Of course, it could be less than that if your leaders would only listen to reason. I'm sorry the weather's so bad for you. We had planned to fix all the roads before you came. But there isn't much we can do about it now. Incidentally, keep your feet dry, fellas. Your medics can't do a thing for frozen toes. And your girlfriends back home don't want you crippled. Take it easy, huh? The 1953 ceasefire on the Korean Peninsula most certainly did not end the psychological warfare there. U.S. Army personnel were still sent to South Korea to try to win enemy hearts and minds. Bill Fireside wound up in South Korea in the mid-50s. His mission was to exercise the power of the pen. Well, I am in the presence of a Psy warrior, and you never knew you were going to be a Psy warrior, did you? No. So how did this begin when you were drafted? How did it begin? Yes. I wish I knew how it began, <laughs> but uh, my training started at a little-known fort off the coast of uh, New Rochelle, New York, called Fort Slocum, which is the Army Information School, where they gave me a background on history, geography, politics, relationships between our allies and our enemies. When that was over, they sent me to Korea, I guess to get the South Koreans to appreciate how good they had it and to get the North Koreans to come join the party in the South. But when you got to Fort Slocum, you didn't know that place existed. You didn't know what purpose it didn't, served. didn't know it. Nobody knew it existed. When I finished basic training, none of the uh, the officers or the office personnel had ever heard of the place. I venture to say most people still haven't heard of it. <laughs> but uh, 
as I found out, it was the home of the Army Chaplain School and the Army Information School. What, what I did was, or what I was taught was rather insignificant in this school because most of the training was to be public information officers at different posts to give out stories to the press of things that were happening on the posts. The one lecture we had on psychological warf- warfare, they suggested that we might as well sleep through it because nobody ever goes there. <laughs> so that was, that was my training. Well, somebody recognized a talent that you had, and that's why you were assigned to PSYOPs? Well, I'm a graduate of Roosevelt University. I went three years to the University of Illinois and found that I could learn more at a smaller school, which incidentally I did. And I have a degree in journalism and advertising. My class voted two of us to be the, the most uh, likely to succeed in advertising. And we both went into advertising and got out within six months. <laughs> there was no love affair there. It wasn't as we learned it to be in school. As a creative person and as a writer, my taste of advertising is I always had people looking over my shoulder, uh, watching what I was doing, and before I got a chance to turn in what, what was requested, the people who were looking over my shoulder did it. And uh, I, I found that this pecking order was terrible. These were the days of um, uh, martinis and um, ulcers. (laughs) And the account executive for Standard Oil, who brought me into this agency, told me he never had an ulcer, but his 11-year-old son did. (laughs) So so I got out of that. So So I guess because of that background, they had me to go into this. Yeah, so somebody up the chain of command recognizes that you've got skills to write, to market. Right. And then you go to Fort Bragg where you get Fort into... Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg the is the real PSYOPs operation. Home of the 82nd Airborne and, and the Special Forces. Big place. Yeah, and when you get there, you find that there are a lot of wonderfully educated people who are, what, raking leaves and picking... <laughs> yes. Uh, psychological warfare seemed to be a dumping ground for the intelligentsia. That were, and, and I felt flattered that I was among these people. With, these were all enlisted men with advanced degrees, and I, I had a bachelor's degree, and I felt dumb next to them. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, they had resigned themselves to spending the rest of their enlistment absolutely doing nothing. Well, didn't someone explain to you that, the, I mean, we were well into, during the, during the conflict in right. Korea, well into leafleting and psyops operations and campaigning to win the hearts and minds of the South Koreans and you know, bring about defections and... Uh. The, the explanations we got were vague. I can't say that we were taught by hardened professionals in that area, but rather by people who were more on the outside looking in like we were, but had read the chapter ahead of us in the book. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't 
in truth say that I got anything out of my training at Fort Bray. But then you're sent to Japan, and you're there for just a couple of days. I was sent to Japan along with three other writers, and they told us, we're sending two of you to Korea, and two of you will stay here. So um, I don't know if I did well on the test or if I flunked it, but I was one of the two that went to Korea. And I was bitter because I had fallen in love with Tokyo. Part of my assignment was to go back to Tokyo periodically to be debriefed. And I met the other two guys who were never out of their dress uniforms, spent their whole time sitting in an office, virtually chained to their desks. I don't know what they were doing. They couldn't even explain it to me. So actually, I wound up with the better of the the deal because after my debriefing, I still had time in Japan to go around sightseeing. And so I actually spent more time in Tokyo itself than the two guys who were stationed there. This sounds to be terribly disorganized, like military intelligence is an oxymoron. As I was reading, the commander of one of the units said that uh, truth is a weapon. It will outrange, outgun, and outfight falsehood of any time, and we are going to bury the opposition in paper, leaflets. We're going to bury them. And they did that during the fighting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, In fact, the name of the unit I was in was the first... L&L, the leaflet and loudspeaker battalion. Their their job primarily was leaflets. My job, I'm working for United States Information Service and the Army, and I carried a United Nations press pass. I wore no rank, and the best part was in my travels I was befriended or I befriended a photographer, writer from Life magazine, and the two of us seemed to bump into each other wherever we would go, so we decided to travel together. And since he was the only representative of Life, he was accorded all the privileges of a brigadier general. And since I traveled with him, I was a lieutenant colonel, but they just paid me as a corporal. Oh, doggone it. (laughs) So uh, I got to stay at officers' quarters in my travels, and I think we got to eat better food. I got to be saluted by men of much higher rank, and I said, it's all right. You know. Well, was there a point in time when you are in Korea and someone sits you down and says, Bill, this is your job. This is your mission. This is what we want you to yes. do. Yes. Uh, at the beginning, they explained to me that I am to go around and find businesses, organizations, peoples, any kind of stories that would convince the South Koreans how wonderful things were here and how good they were getting and convince North Koreans to come south, flee the oppressive hermit kingdom. And you would do this by writing stories for magazines, for radio broadcasts, and designing leaflets to be dropped in North Korea. When they told you that and set up, 
did they give you a foundation of what had happened during the fighting? The leafletting campaign. Yeah, somewhat. Uh, you know, the, the whole loudspeaker thing where they were, and I mentioned to you earlier, yes. Seoul City Sue, who was the Korean War's Tokyo Rose. And she did broadcasts and said, basically, uh, GIs, uh, you're going to freeze your tails off. Your girls back home are going to find other men and try to do all the uh, fundamental things that, that propagandists have done over the period of time to discourage yeah. the boys out there. So uh, did you know about a lot of that stuff? Um, it was before I got there, right. and I knew vaguely about her. I mean, I wasn't sat down and explained all the things that went on before me. It was pretty much fly by the seat of my pants. Some of the places I went to and some of the people I interviewed were just fabulous. I was many at many of Sigmund Rhee's press conferences. He was the president. He was not beloved by the people. I had constant contact with the civilians. I never met anybody that really liked Sigmund Rhee. So you had him down here and you had the other guy up north whose name I said will never pass my lips again. <laughs> so the people in between were pawns. Sigmund Rhee set out the war in Hawaii, but all he wanted was a unified Korea. And he wanted to, and be, he wanted to be the man at the top. Back. And the guy in the north had the same desire. So this was, you know, one strong man against another. I would have coffee a few times a month with the representative of the United States Information Service, and they would give me some leads, things that they knew. And then I would get some from the UN office also. So I was never at a loss for places to go. And I but, but you determined that, yeah, I gather. It was, it you, was up you, to me where I wanted You called in shots. I will tell you about a few of them. And I, I've got to start with this orphanage that I mentioned before. The woman who ran this orphanage... Kim Sun-ok, when the war broke out, she took a bunch of kids and a piano and a cart and pushed them from the Seoul area down to Pusan. That's way at the bottom of the Which is peninsula. about 150 miles. And then she came back again. And this story evidently really got to the people who were there before me that they helped build this orphanage for her. And the kids were either musically inclined or wanted to be. 20th Century Fox heard about this, and they sent a film crew in to do a, a short on the, the orphanage. It was so fascinating. They, the land they had... They even had a huge garden. It was almost like a farm where they grew their own fruits and vegetables. They were fairly self-sustaining. I'm a former violinist, which they found out, and I, I says, well, you're going to help. Te I said, I can't teach. And they found out I'm going to Japan. They said, we need a cello. Can you get us a cello in Japan? So I found a cello, and I brought it back. I said, right, who's going to teach cello? Well, we don't have anybody here, so you're going to teach. I said, I can't teach violin. How am I going to teach cello? 
<laughs> so I started teaching cello. I faked my way through it. And the, the kid I was teaching absolutely caught on to it. And, and within weeks, he was playing the cello. Oh, thank God for you. You're the star yeah. teacher and you don't so, know what you're doing. I, okay, so that, that was fun. I was talking to one of our cooks uh, at the base where I lived in Seoul. And they said, well, we're going to bring some food over there. We'll have a party. So they bring a big pot of spaghetti. And if you've ever seen a bunch of kids trying to eat spaghetti with chopsticks, this, this was worth the trip. Did you get any pictures of that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The U.S. Information Service, the, the U.N. folks sit down with you from time to time over coffee or whatever, and they say, here's, Bill, this might be a good story. And then you go to it, right? Uh, you interview people, as a journalist would do, and you go back to the shop and you write up a story, right? and you're good to go. And then you go on and do the next you're one. Going, yeah. So how many stories do you think you wrote during the course of your time over there? Oh, easily 25, 30 Fascinating one was I was told about a Boy Scout troop formed inside of a prison. These were the sons of incarcerated prisoners living off site of the prison, but the troop itself was formed in the prison. So uh, I went there and I in interviewed some of the kids, the leaders. And then my wife always wants me to tell this story. The warden invited us for lunch, my photographer, my sound man, and my interpreter. And we sat at, at the table with the, the warden sitting at the head, and I'm right next to him because I'm the guest of honor. And then they placed before me a fried egg, sunny side up. And I had maybe two days ago learned the basics of how to eat with chopsticks. But I'm looking at this egg, I have, haven't got a clue. How, so I asked my interpreter what to do. He says, you take one chopstick and you cut around the yolk. You know, you detach it from the white. And then you take your chopsticks and, and come in under it, pick up the yolk and pop it in your mouth. Okay, I'll try it. So I did that. I got it cut out nicely. Get the chopsticks under the yolk. Flip it up right into the warden's face. <laughs> so I figured I would be spending the rest of my enlistment at the prison with... <laughs> but he laughed it off, wiped okay. off his face, and we continued eating. <laughs> How did the troop come about in the prison? That they just... uh, it, it was fine. <clears throat> Somebody had the idea that they had to do something with these kids who were going to get into trouble if, if they didn't, and it worked. And we should say now, you later in life became a scoutmaster, so did this whet your appetite yeah, for scouts? Well, I, I was an Eagle Scout as a kid and uh, a junior assistant scoutmaster. All right. And when I got out of the Army, I felt 
it was time to pay back uh-huh. to that, and right. I became a scoutmaster for a few years. But in the business world where I was forced to make a living, I did a lot of traveling and couldn't be at, at all the meetings I had to be, so I had to give that up eventually, which leads me to another scouting story. Okay. Across the street from our office in a bombed-out building in Seoul, was another bombed-out building that housed the Girl Scouts of Korea. And I was doing a story on them, talking to them about camping, and, and they, they really don't get the picture. And so I became the national camping director of the Girl Scouts of Korea. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you got talked into a lot of different Oh, roles, I got talked you? into everything. In my dealings with them, I met a lovely woman who was one of the leaders, a young woman, and we got to talking, and she said that her wedding was coming up soon, that her parents had chosen this person who she never met, but she was in love with somebody else. Oh, boy. And this this is a real problem. So, you know, the consummate volunteer in me... I helped her elope. (laughs) (laughs) Did did you ever imagine when you got drafted that you would be be, be arranging marriages (laughs) and flipping egg yolks into a warden's face? No, no, I I mean, the things that I ran into, my my military service, I talk with other GIs and we start comparing notes. Nobody could imagine what I did. I had to take a train ride to Pusan. And here I I was by myself and I was to meet up with uh, the other personnel in Busan. So on these trains, which is a long ride, people get on the train in their pajamas. You know, there, there are no sleepers. So that, and I'm sitting in the midst of a Korean family, and the man next to me has this jug of mm, liquor of some sort. And I remember reading a directive that came down about Yakju, I think was the name of the um, whiskey, or wannabe whiskey and they said if it's ever to offered ever offered to you don't drink it because we had two GIs go blind and one died from so so keeping this in the back of my mind um, you know the little cups when you go to the dent uh, the doctor or the dentist where that they put the pills, pills in, in it, yeah. so he had a stack of these you know and he's passing out the cups and pouring this mysterious liquid into them. So there was no air conditioning on these trains, so the windows were open, and I'm seated next to the window, and he would pour me a cup, and then I would distract him and then toss the contents out the window. And, oh, your your cup is empty. Let me give you more. So I helped him uh, uh, get rid of a lot of the liquid in that bottle without really tasting it. Well, you know that was a good move because you didn't go blind. Yeah. yeah. You attended the post-ceasefire Panmunjom Peace yeah, Talks. Yeah, I uh, attended one session, so I can't say I was a regular attendee there. This was 
all done over the 38th parallel, across the wide divide. I must say the demilitarized zone, which was the 38th parallel, was heavily guarded on both sides, by both sides. Coming across that line to go in either direction, you took your life in your own hands. Another aside that I just remembered, watching a National Geographic special years ago, they found this to be a wildlife sanctuary because nobody was bothering the animals in there and how the animals were thriving in, in, in this, which never never occurred to me. But So out of all of this bad came something good. So anyhow, we would go into the Quonset hut, line up on one side of a table where the opposition came in another door and lined up on the other side. Everybody sat down. One side said something. The other disagreed. Everybody got up and walked out. And I was told that this was pretty much the pattern for quite some time. I have read that in those sessions before they achieved the treaty, there were constant disputes about positions of where people would sit, where they would place the flags. Absolutely. And so they had quarrels over minutiae and never got anything done because of that. And, and actually, this was pretty well manipulated from Moscow and from Peking, although North Korea tried to assert their independence they still were beholden. From what I've learned, so many of the shots and the OKs during the war and for quite some time after and possibly still continuing today are coming from the Kremlin. Permit me to ask you a question about your role as a journalist. That's how you're trained, and journalists are supposed to present the facts. The readers, the listeners, the watchers will draw conclusions from the evidence that you present to them. But you are asked to, in this role, tell a story that favors one side over the other. And I wonder if there was any kind of a conflict for you in doing that. A conflict in my mind? Yes. No, because I became a believer. I understood what the war was all about. You know, this, this was a war that was not particularly well publicized in America. And, you know, when I went to Korea, I really didn't know what it was all about. The one thing that that really impressed me is when I got to speak with defectors, people that actually came in from North Korea, hopefully as a result of my work, they were believers in what they were doing in the North. I mean, they, they were well steeped in education. They had constant training sessions. And I would talk to our GIs they were drafted or they enlisted, but they didn't have this this rock-solid foundation of what they were fighting for, what they believed in. When I got off the plane coming to Korea, the guy next to me is looking around. He says, did you ever see so many foreigners? <laughs> and, you know, that stuck with me. Yeah. So part of my training was American history at the Army Information School. So I had a much better handle on what we were fighting for than the average, average GI, GI did. Yeah. There's really no good way to measure the effectiveness of what you wrote in no. terms of its ultimate goal, but do you think that perhaps some of the people who defected or maybe didn't defect but at least read your stuff 
changed opinions, changed actions because of well, I had the product? Hoped, I had hoped so. But again, talking to a farmer, just met him in a field working, and I called him over. They have to realize when I talked to these people, I had my interpreter with me because uh, my Korean language ability is, is somewhere uh, down in the basement. Anyhow, I said, now that the Americans or the United Nations has come to your rescue, you feel better. He says, it, it doesn't make any difference whether it's communists or democracy. Whoever puts food in my belly, that's who I'm for. Mm-hmm. And that hit home. People who need creature comforts, who want a life, and politics is the last thing on their mind. I met the Minister of Education for the Republic of Korea on the steps of the bombed-out Capitol building in Seoul. His name was Hong Ki Carl, and he is looking with his pointing with his arms over all these bombed out buildings and desecration. He says, someday this will be the greatest tourist attraction in the world. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, sure it will, with my tongue placed firmly in my cheek. And after seeing the pictures of the Olympics in in Seoul and seeing what it now looks like today, I'll be darned if he wasn't right. Yeah. It's yeah. a gorgeous city. Have you been back? No, I have not been back. It's on my to-do list. I don't know if I'll get there, but um, I'm thinking about it. But, but you, you, you follow everything that's going on. Oh, You're yes. pretty much aware of how the, the ceasefire continues uh, so many years later. Yes, um, I am. And... When I came back from the Army, I just came back. uh, Like so many of us came back from Korea, most of our neighbors didn't even know we were gone. I left the Army life quite far behind me and really didn't think too much about it until I heard about this wonderful group of people called Honor Flight. And uh, they're offering these free trips to Washington. I had been to Washington maybe four or five times already. I had seen these monuments. And I said, well, I really don't have to go. That's for people who... That, that I believe, started in 2008. That's correct. So it wasn't until 2021, 13 years later, I decided, well, if I'm going to go, I better go now because there might not be a 2022 for me. And I was absolutely blown away by this experience. When I came back, I said, I have to become a volunteer for this organization because what they do is so wonderful. The uh, Korean vets were never properly thanked. The Vietnam vets were demeaned, yelled at, spit at. You know that they were told when they they go through airports not to wear their uniforms. Right, get in your civvies right away. I mean, a terrible thing. So certainly thank yous to them are a long time coming. And who's ever left from World War II, this was, this was the popular war. And their welcome home was, was 
dramatic. But it's time those that still exist are thanked again. Uh, on my flight, it was the, I think, the first one that had no World War II vets on it at all. And the last flight, uh, which was October of this year, uh, had three. So um, we're running out of World War II vets, and I think we're running out of Korean vets. But there's still lots of Vietnam vets that will be honored with these trips. When you were at the Korean Memorial, and it's changed, you know, now they've added the wall. individual names yeah. uh, very much, and it has, I, I think, Arguably the same impact that the Vietnam Wall has because of individual names. Yes. Individuals, human beings lost in combat, not just U.S., but also the coalition forces who passed away. When you were there, what sensations came over you? The Korean Monument itself is soldiers as a patrol walking through a field. The sculpting of these statues is so real that you sense the movement, you sense the expressions on their faces, their equipment. They they look like real soldiers walking through a field. And and this, you, you can't help but getting moved by this. As you said, the first time I saw this monument, there was no wall around it. And today there is much like the Vietnam Wall. And there is also carved in stone the saying that freedom isn't free, which is so true. So whatever the service, whatever the monument, there's always thousands of stories to be told behind them. All of these stories are, you know, they're they're all over the place, from a guy who was a cook, a jeep driver, to hard-fought combat. I sat next to a guy who was a pilot who was shot down three times. You you can't help but get involved with these stories. And then you look back on what you did, and I don't deserve this, they do. And, and that's the feeling. Except if you were called upon during the time of war to go to the place where you would be on the front lines, would you have gone? Sure. Okay. So your government asked you to perform something different at a different time, right. and you did Well, it. as I mentioned before, uh, since my flight, I have become a volunteer, and I go throughout the area giving talks on honor flight, encouraging those who are eligible to sign up to fly. In my talks, I, I say it doesn't make any difference what you did. You know, behind every fighting man, there are, what, 17, 20 support people? Mm -hmm. And without those support people, the guy on the front line is is helpless. So whatever you did is so appreciated. And this isn't only for men. Uh, I'm sure you know about the flight that was all women. Operation Her Story. In fact, I've met one of the women who was on this flight. Even the pilot and the co-pilot were women, which uh, I think is fantastic. And she was still glowing about it months after it happened. When you do something, you don't do it necessarily to be thanked. But if you're ignored, it sort of hurts. And when you get this special thank you, it makes you feel worthwhile. I I would like to read something 
Please. That I start all my talks with. And this was in my packet of letters that was given to me. Hopefully it's in everybody's packet. This is written by Father Dennis Edward O'Brien, a chaplain in the Marine Corps. And it's a tribute to all veterans. He says, It is the soldier and not the reporter who has given us freedom of the press. It's the soldier and not the poet who has given us the freedom of speech. It's the soldier and not the organizer who has given us the freedom to demonstrate. And it is the soldier who salutes the flag, who serves beneath the flag, and whose coffin is draped by the flag, who allows the protester to burn the flag. Every time I read that and I look at the audience, they're stunned. And each time I read it, I'm stunned also. And I I hope this is included in everybody's packet. And that's by Father Dennis Edward O'Brien. Here's a present for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, you're on the trail to uh, bang the drum and get more people to fly, aren't you? You're an ambassador. I'm an ambassador without portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, have you ever attempted again to eat an egg yolk with chopsticks? Oh, yes. I have become a professional. (laughs) No. In fact, when we go to a Chinese restaurant, I'm not even allowed to use a fork. (laughs) Another interesting story. Years ago, we went to a Chinese restaurant, and uh, we ordered our meal, and I ordered chopsticks. And in the back of the restaurant are some of the employees of the restaurant, all all Chinese, eating their meals with knives and forks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you ought to do some stand-up comedy, I think. (laughs) I've done that, too. Okay. Well, Minister Without Portfolio, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for listening. That's great. Thanks, Bill. (laughs) War brings fear and panic, pain and unimaginable loss. But at the same time, it's always produced humor, much of it very dark, but still necessary and natural as a means of keeping those at war somewhat sane. It's also true that war gives birth to many stories. Bill Fireside wrote about some of them and tells many more with his marvelous sense of humor. Perhaps that's the best measure of someone who was trained to wage psychological warfare. I hope you learned a bit and had some laughs. You're certainly welcome to share this podcast. Laughter is contagious. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.